What is the highest technique you hope to achieve? We have no technique. Very good. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder. This is Fight Like an Animal. You can find episode bibliographies and texts corresponding to some episodes. I say this without equivocation or qualification of any kind at againsttheinternet.com. So I finally have started putting up some texts, um, or in any case, one. Uh, it's increasingly true that I'm writing a book and as the momentum grows, I'll, I'll post more stuff. The process of writing has involved a significant amount of like reconceptualization or, or really just like uh, a shuffling around of structure. So I thought that I would write a book where episodes and chapters had like a pretty direct uh, sort of, you know, linear relationship. And that's not what's ended up happening at all. Um, so the text that I have put up that, that is there so far for people to see is, um, one of the early chapters and it corresponds roughly to the episodes of the group mind series. The world is a lot like the internet and suburban holy war seem like a good place to start talking about psychological variation and political perceptions and the relationship of those things to uh, technology and social complexity and the compartmentalization of experience in ever more refined niches. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, that's exciting. You know, this, this podcast at this point represents, I truly just have no idea how many hours of me talking. And I feel like sometimes really important points, you know, get made in a pretty ephemeral manner or, or get made in a, in the manner that one would expect after somebody who's kind of sick and sleep deprived has been talking for three hours or whatever, you know, and that there's a great deal more sort of like fixity and, you know, a sense of decisiveness associated with, with putting these concepts and, you know, all of this evidence into a text form. So check that out against the internet.com where you can also find my contact information. Please do write to me. I'm sure we have lots to talk about. And if you want to help me continue to do this work, please check out patreon.com slash biological singularity. It both, you know, provides a huge psychological uh, validation and impetus to keep going, as well as very significantly buffering the misery and deprivation of being poor in the United States of America. Okay. Oh, and let me just say real quickly that uh, the text that I just put online have four images that were designed by my friend Ogo at Autonomy Press, who also just gave me a new fight like an animal logo. Bruce Lee and a screaming chimpanzee inside a yin-yang. I'm super enamored with it. And so for all your graphic design, screen printing, and layout needs, 
do check out autonomypress.org. Ogo is my old friend. We have a long history of doing lots of spectacularly strange things together. And I think if you see the images uh, that accompany the text, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Autonomypress.org. Okay. I know that your snake style is terrific, but my monkey technique can kill snakes. This is kind of an episode of like salvaged remnants or I don't know. There's a little bit of an awkward quality here that I, I did a first draft of this that had a pretty minimal outline. Usually there's a, a pretty like high degree of predictability in terms of the length of an episode and the outline. This one just sprawled into chaos and confusion the first time I tried to do it. And I, I very strongly suspect that was because I had this notion that I, I wanted to, you know, I was like, oh, I want to get away from abstraction. I'm going to talk about left-right brain hemisphere processing differences after all and, you know, advocate for integration between the two, which means, you know, not getting totally lost in abstraction. So I'm going to tell personal stories that illustrate some of the points I'm making. And I just think it went like terribly, I like terribly um, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then this episode always had this kind of like, uh, this quality of really me just reading McGillchrist's The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which I'm not, you know, I, I didn't want to make these episodes like a series and require people to listen to any given one um or to listen to all of them to listen to any given one but uh you know but like kind of in a very rough sense this is me wrapping up a journey that started with life is holy war and you know is just like looking at sociopolitical realities through the lens of these brain hemisphere processing differences which to mercilessly summarize uh I would say, like in his new book, The Matter with Things, that McGillchrist uh, came out with not too long ago, he concisely summarizes the differences as the left hemisphere being prone to apprehension of the world in the sense of actually taking things from it, and the right hemisphere being prone to comprehension of the world. Seems like a decent one sentence summary. And you know, we've seen as we've gone through the evidence, these correlated themes emerging over and over again of the left hemisphere being oriented to uh, stasis and subdivision and the right hemisphere being oriented to change and wholeness. Um, and just like going through it, there was this, you know, I kept occurring to me how this framework could be applied to different situations, different cultural materials, different moments of cultural and political upheaval, whatever, you know, just different dialogues that have occurred throughout the course of the human experience. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I kind of just designated this episode the place to kind of like mention some of those like other frames or other contexts in which this frame seems pretty interesting and relevant. Um, and then, but then also, uh, 
I wanted it to be kind of if philosophy or schizophrenia, our last episode, was sort of like, what is it like to be trapped? If according to, you know, the thesis is that the left hemisphere is uniquely competitive and more prone to like capturing the dynamics and that we might even be able to see this at the evolutionary scale in the, you know, asymmetry of our brain structure, the hemispheric asymmetry, where it appears that some level of like right brain growth, right hemisphere brain growth and development has been suppressed. Um, but, you know, all the way from that to the prevailing love of categorical abstraction and, um, you know, separation of observer from observation and all the rest that characterizes everything we call like sophisticated or scientific discourse in this society. If the left hemisphere is uniquely prone to this, uh, this reality of like capture, um, then, you know, like what does a world in which we are trapped in the hall of mirrors of left hemisphere abstraction and utilitarianism looks like? Well, it looks like exactly what I see out my damn window right this very second, right? It looks like the world we live in and the distinctly psychotic uh, perceptions that are associated with left hemisphere dominance, you know, can be extended beyond the realm of the psychotic per se into the state planner and the urban forester and the psychiatrist and all the rest, then, um, you know, like what constitutes escape? What, what does escape look like? And uh, you, my claim, I mean, this would seem to emerge rather obviously from the fact that we are, in fact, talking about <laughs> two sides of the brain that are right there, both active in any given, you know, behavior perception. Um it, one would assume that escape is always imminent, that there's, that there's, should be throughout the course of the human experience, um, a lot of moments where, um, where those dynamics of capture are transcended somehow or other. And, you know, as much as it might seem in one sense like it's very impossible to imagine people changing in a fundamental way at this point in our social trajectory, um, at, at this point, this deep into the feedback loops between technology and biology that we've entered. On the other hand, it's actually just so totally inevitable that we at least, you know, if not achieve like a wholesale victory at the, you know, at the level of like the entire society, that we should always be seeing movements away from this process of capture because those other realities are just right there. They're intrinsic to us, you know, and they are just right there. Um, and to to give this a little bit to to engage in some very coarse psychographic segmentation that that helps us do this analysis in a meaningful way, I think that we could think broadly of you know if like this podcast has three premises that are also one, like the God of the Christians, 
the unitary overarching premise being a search for a version of humanity that is capable of survival, or at least capable of engaging our crisis in the best manner possible, even if survival itself actually turns out to be not possible. We don't know. Um, you know, and then and then the three the three diversified versions of that theme would be like a search for a version of ourselves in the sense of like the revolutionaries the people who are in the room asking how to completely transform society or at least how to like shut down the pipelines or whatever um you know certainly it should be acknowledged that we aren't necessarily the optimal agents for the transformations that uh, we desire. That should seem self-evident from, you know, losing so badly. Um, and that, I mean, or, or it should at least seem like a plausible hypothesis for, for one reason why we're losing so badly. Um, and then, and then there's the, the vast, there's everybody else, right? The vast majority of humanity. And, uh, and I, I would argue that we've explored kind of two versions of that search for a version of that, you know, that portion of humanity that is capable of survival. And one is like to really ask about the niche reasoning, the, the like very specific sort of cosmologies that people are inhabiting as they, you know, run wild with the tendencies they were born with because they found a bunch of other people on the internet who possess exactly that same set of tendencies. And, you know, asking if there's a way to kind of inhabit the stories that they're telling, to, to speak to them truly on their terms, which means actually trying to, under, like, taking human psychological diversity seriously and respecting it and actually trying to find those terms, right? And But then to communicate about something in a way that, you know, disposes people to seeing the world more as we do or, or not, but participating in some kind of collective project of, again, survival or facing annihilation in the best way possible. But then there's also, there's another question, and these are not exclusive. Like one can, there's a tension here, but one can embrace the tension. There's also, you know, the other approach of asking, well, what is truly fundamental that still exists underlying all of this radically divergent, uh, you know, perceptions of the world that characterize the time we're living in? Is there something that can be appealed to that is collectively coherent, that still resides in all of us? And I would say that what we're talking about this time is like, it's, it's oriented towards uh, sub-themes sub one and three of, of, those, of those three, of like the version of ourselves, the, whatever transformations are necessary within ourselves, and then appealing to a more universal uh, set of reasoning processes and emotional and psychological needs that, you know, ultimately still characterizes humanity for all our differences. So, uh, you know, obviously in these discussions of hemispheric differences, one thing that'll occur to anybody 
is is the mystical experience and the you know the various like dreams and visions that people have been subject to over the course of the human journey and and you know the very significant impact on structuring societies and shaping politics that some people's crazy inner experience has in fact had right um I think if we're in the terrain of the Old Testament, for instance, with its disembodied voices giving bizarre, uh, you know, prescriptions and like implementing all of these like weird, seemingly unnecessarily complicated rules uh, and, you know, creating a whole, whole, whole lot of hierarchy, then then we are probably in a, a somewhat left hemisphere dominated world of inner experience, you know, uh, and then we could obviously say that uh, the, the Christianity itself, to some extent, you know, in those first few centuries that it existed, where it was really unclear what kind of meanings uh, Christianity would ultimately have. And, and certainly like the the mystical varieties of it would be kind of like a, a rebellion against or a flight from that capture of the left hemisphere of the, the dynamics of experience. Um, certainly this was kind of like uh, Carl Jung, you know, without having the brain science, definitely talked about the New Testament as a return to a broader state of awareness, you know, like he, he certainly characterized the Bible as reflective of, you know, individual psychological, like individual experience and the, the progression of those texts as like a developmental process wherein at first, like agency is asserted according to an overconfidence in one's like certainty of the world and, and how much they know about it and their ability to manipulate it. And then, um, and then, you know, like a, a coming into an awareness of a, a broader context wherein one can see one's own role in the world with more humility. He talks about that, uh, that passage from that Gnostic gospel, that Gnostic text that goes, God said, I am the Lord thy God, and there are no other gods but me. Then a voice came out of the deepest heaven and said, Thou liest, God of the blind. <laughs> one, one of the better passages. One of the better passages from the Gnostic Gospels. Um, and we could, you know, like probably, so I, I think that, um, there's as mu much like we talked about various psychotic states being wrongly perceived as a descent into irrationality when they are in fact a descent into hyper rationality last episode where like getting to the point where you think the machine in your head is definitely controlled by 
like the one, you know, radio tower on the ridge or whatever is not just like some crazy gibberish that you come up with when you're, you're just feeling like, well, what's the wildest thing I can think of to say right now? But actually is like the result of some long nights doing some hard work of like very rigorous reasoning processes, that madness of many varieties from schizophrenia to meth psychosis, uh, you know, has this, this quality of like unbearable rigor. I think that we can make similar arguments about the ascendance of ridiculous superstition as the basis of like the worldview in Europe in the Middle Ages, the so-called Dark Ages. And like, uh, again, I think that and McGilchrist points out that a lot of that was actually a hyper, that a lot of like what Christianity was in that time was really like a hyper legalistic. It very much has this, this quality of, of left hemisphere dominant processing where it's like, some model gets established and then everything gets like axiomatically described in terms of the model and the the disparity between reality and the model is ignored because of this just like overarching confidence in its validity and that yeah so like a lot of like a lot of like medieval Christianity had this quality of like very legalistic formal reasoning where it's like, well, okay, obviously these texts aren't gibberish. Obviously this is absolute truth. And the only mandate is to figure out how to apply it to all of the diverse situations we encounter in life that the text doesn't say anything explicitly about. And then, you know, like just getting really, really, really lost in that, you know, so-called reasoning process. Um, and, you know, but, but with, with the inevitable, with the outcomes inevitably being biased towards an opposition to the body, right? You know, like there's uh, the Middle Ages are sort of just like characteristically this time of like, deep ideological animosity to embodied existence um and to any to any like act of personal like to any individual just like who is embedded in the experience of being alive coming to their own conclusions about anything um and then so one interesting way in which i could see uh, these brain hemisphere processing style differences being applied to a significant moment of social and political rupture that we have talked about on this podcast before would be the dancing epidemics, right? As a, as far as a, a like really intense, fervent sort of rejection of that logic. Um, and so, uh, if you, if you didn't listen before, um, you can always check out, the group mind episode dan uh concerts riots cults talks about the dancing epidemics pretty extensively but you know the their salient features for our purposes are the way that if the social order 
that people inhabited at that time was the, you know, the product of all this rigorous axiomatic reasoning from the indisputable truth of the Bible, um, that the way that the social form of the dancing epidemics emerged is the exact opposite um, from, you know, from a brain hemisphere processing perspective. It, it was entirely affected by embodied empathic communication, which, you know, which is to say mirror neurons and empathy and intelligence being essentially the same thing and all the rest. When we see somebody doing something, a part of ourselves models us being them doing that thing. We have the experience of being the people that we observe. And um, so this gets into, I think, I mean, you know, this is like, there's this unitary, there's a lot of unitary features between the, the dancing epidemics themselves, which are this, you know, this circumscribed phenomena that emerged multiple times uh, throughout the course of centuries in these social environments that were so devoted to militant opposition to the body and intuition and, you know, hatred of all things earthly and music being the work of the devil and all that, where people just completely gave up their lives and danced in a frenzy for days, weeks, months at a time, sometimes to death. And, you know, nobody could quite explain what was happening. There's an affinity between those phenomena and in particular and like possession states in general. I'll find, I'll find the reference and put it in the bibliography. I don't have the book anymore, but I used to have a good book of like, sociological analysis of possession states and, and basically describing how so often um, a culture will have some kind of some kind of framework of that like yeah sometimes people get really sick and the you know like the whatever entity enters them and makes them you know perform whatever kind of behaviors and that those cultural frameworks are really enduring and like robust across a lot of conditions but that most people will exhibit possession states when there's some clear sort of like unusual degree of adversity in their social conditions and that it seems to be a way that people rebel or reject their social conditions that involves almost no analysis or planning or conversations of any kind, but that can be, uh, you know, through the mechanism of social contagion because embodied empathic communication is so potent and so, so catalyzing of actual behavior. Uh, it, it can create essentially like uh, strategies of mass sort of, you know, non-participation or, or like uh, mass political conflict without anybody ever going to a single meeting ever, uh, which is also, it should be noted, the case with things like riots, right? You know, they're, they're, they're not based on anybody presenting a strategy or anything like that. They're based on people observing others doing something. And, you know, this fundamental question 
always emerges, whether we're just literally watching somebody doing something or we're hearing their arguments where, uh, you know, on one hand, we, we can rationally evaluate, like, are their arguments valid or is what they're doing useful? But then there, there's something else that's always happening, which is that we're evaluating the state of being that we imagine these arguments or this behavior must emerge from. And we're asking, is this the state of being that I want to inhabit? And, you know, in, in the case of rioting, much like with possession states, it's like people get to these places where the way things are is really painful and these collective behaviors help transcend that pain. So ultimately, I think that that's a, a valid broad characterization is that a social rupture uh, away from left hemisphere dominance, a political process away from left hemisphere dominance would almost necessarily not be totally derived from any kind of reasoning or strategic deliberations or rational calculations of any variety that happened in the realm of language and that instead they would be based on embodied empathic communication of some kind or another. And the question, of course, would be, well, what's the behavior, right? And, and be, especially because it must be acknowledged that uh, often social phenomena that have this quality um, don't really tend towards coherence. Like riots don't tend towards any kind of like coherent systemic transformative capacity at a certain point and um, that kind of like accounts for the the experience of participating in them often has this really like cyclical quality where there's a, a phase often somewhat brief where it feels like truly anything is possible and then there's like a, a dead end phase that happens pretty quickly where the dynamics get really repetitive and you see how there's just actually no real way to like gain much ground or, or do anything that like has a principled strategic dimension to it. Uh, you know, often there's no way to even get people to make decisions on the order of complexity of like, well, maybe if we split up into two groups, one group will get over the bridges or whatever, you know. Um, so that is a, so what's the behavior? What's, the, you know, what's the state of being or whatever that is being communicated to people other than through language? Um, that is the, the fabulously interesting strategic question that it is. But I, I do think that to some extent, we would have a real revolutionary strategy, not if we had some perfect conceptualization of the revolution that we could present on the internet or in this podcast or whatever, but if there was something that I could walk out my door right now and do, or you could walk out your door right now and do, and that other people could observe and simply participate in because it 
felt better than not because whatever other effects it had of radically reshaping society forever and ever or whatever, it also was appealing on the level of, you know, meeting some basic psychological experiential need that isn't being met for people as we, you know, hang out in our respective little boxes, grateful for one more day of electricity and the internet and coffee shops before everything is on fire and everybody dies or whatever. And so McGilchrist has a whole section that is about this. Um, and in particular, he's framing it or talking about it in terms of music versus language. So it's this section called language, truth and music. Um, and, you know, and he's, he's, the basic thesis is that language is actually uniquely prone to obscuring the nature of things, which I really think is true. I think that humans often find themselves in situations that they are more confused about than almost any other like complex social animal would be. Uh, precisely because we do get so lost in language and abstraction that I think that we're really uniquely capable of thinking things about the situations we're in that are obviously untrue. You know, i.e. like, this is utopia when, when in fact the situation you're in is a nightmarish dystopia, um, but just has a lot of like cheerful rhetoric or whatever. Um, and so I think that I think that like music is a, a great sort of way into that general understanding. But I think it's much broader than that. You know, like like riots are a good example, like or the Earth First episode that I did recently, uh, if you caught that, where I talked about how I think it's sort of lost in the mists of time to a lot of people but Earth First, for all the other things that it was, was kind of like a performance in literary genre. And it was very much about that, about people having these essentially religious experiences or mystical experiences or whatever, in any other, in any other description that would be true, of unity with life, with all of existence, with the mountain that was about to be strip-mined or clear-cut, and a willingness to be the part of that living system that is fighting for itself and how, you know, the experience of being an earth firster was one of like attending rallies and stuff like that, where people would have these, you know, like do these performances of whatever variety where they'd be like having this experience. And then you would empathically like the that then that experience would become collective and, and on some level of course i'm just describing like you know any political tendency that has rallies on some level is like of course doing a version of that like trying to inculcate a particular variety of collective consciousness um but you know but i would just say it was like a particularly potent version of that like my first experience in earth first which I, I don't think i described in the episode was like being at one of the big like annual parties the the round river rendezvous and the rally thing that happened 
the night before the big mass action was like, you know, a band called Kong playing songs about spiking trees and stuff and using like guns for the percussion along with like 55 gallon oil drums and like really producing this state. And then the next day, you know, a couple hundred people descending on this logging road. And it was like, whatever the actual actions were and whatever their strategic utility, they were all of the variety of like rolling giant boulders onto the logging road or like making big slash piles or digging trenches in it with a pickaxe or whatever. And like, you know, like whatever the, the concrete utility of those actions were, there definitely was a transcendent collective experiential dynamic that was like worshiping the forest together. That was like affirming one's sense of the sacredness of life by, you know, like every like every like rock that got placed on the road or like fallen tree that got placed on the road, like having this incredible sort of religious significance in a way. Um, you know, so I think that I think that there's ways way beyond music that this general dynamic functions. Uh, but, you know, music is a good way to analyze it. And so he talks about first like describing it at the neurological level um, and just talking about the very idea of being able to comprehend things through means other than language, like thinking outside of language. Uh, which which we do, which is how, you know, as as always, this tendency for left hemisphere modes to want to assert a sort of primacy and say that they are not just a path, a necessary path to knowledge, but kind of like the exclusive means. And, you know, so there's this way in which a lot of people really think language and thought are the same thing, and they're not. And that comprehension, especially of like, you know, high level abstract concepts or whatever is linguistic. And a lot of the time it's shockingly non-linguistic. If you, you know, if you read the accounts of scientists having great insights or, um, you know, or you yourself are just like working on a math problem or whatever, it's, it's often really clear that language is not how we comprehend a lot of the the, you know, not just like the intuitive realities of like, I uh, like the tree, like, like coffee is good or whatever, but how we, you know, how we comprehend like sophisticated abstract concepts is often very non-linguistic. Uh, yeah. So, so McGillchrist says there are significant similarities between music and language, suggesting at least a common origin. For example, many subtle aspects of language are mediated by regions of the right hemisphere, which also mediate the performance and experience of music. Furthermore, these right hemisphere regions are the homologues of areas in the left hemisphere that are involved with language production and comprehension. They are in the, quote, same position on the other side of the brain. And a little later, there is a not wholly reliable principle that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, that, in other words, the development of individuals of a species follows a similar course to that taken by the development of the species as a whole. A simple example is the early development by the human embryo of a tail, which it later loses. 
To the degree that this principle holds here, then music came before language. An observation to this effect was made even by Salomon Henschen. Quote, the musical faculty is phylogenetically older than language. Some animals have a musical faculty, birds in a high degree. It is also ontogenetically older, for the child begins to sing earlier than to speak. Ultimately, music is the communication of emotion, the most fundamental form of communication, which in phylogeny, as well as ontogeny, came and comes first. Neurological research strongly supports the assumption that our love of music reflects the ancestral ability of our mammalian brain to transmit and receive basic emotional sounds, the prosody and rhythmic motion that emerge intuitively from entrainment of the body in emotional expression. Music was built upon the prosodic mechanisms of the right hemisphere that allow us affective emotional communications through vocal intonations. And then he, he talks about how, you know, there's debate about this. There's also the theory that music is a totally, you know, a totally spurious byproduct of other evolved capacities, say our capacity for language. And one person, maybe this comes as no surprise, who, uh, who supports this implausible and, you know, cheerlessly mechanistic view of the world is Steven Pinker, who I just think, I, I love to think about Steven Pinker every time something just terrible and apocalyptic seeming happens. You know, I just think it must be such a hard job at a certain point to be the guy whose fundamental premise is to say, we are, we as a society that rationality is ascendant it's you know and that we as a society are getting more and more rational and it's going great that it, it might seem because a bunch of troublesome humanities scholars and and activists and whatnot have made it a point to like you know reveal all of the destructive tendencies within the society we live in that it might seem like we're embroiled in crisis and tragedy but we're not we're in this long-term evolutionary trajectory towards you know the perfection of the human species and our unification um, into a singular global consensus according to <laughs> principles of like pure rationality and blah 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 and like, you know, I mean, he's been doing that for decades and it must just be getting harder. And anyway, that's that's a huge digression. But um, yeah, so McGilchrist uh, talks about how, you know, how communication of this non-linguistic variety achieves all this complexity. He says, in case one is tempted to think that music could never provide a flexible or extensive enough means of communication for hominids, one should remember that the extensive social lives of some of the most intelligent non-human animals, not only bonobos, but aquatic mammals such as whales and dolphins, down to and including the complex attack maneuvers of killer whales, are coordinated entirely by, one, by what one might call music, a language of pitch, intonation, and temporal relation. And he says, perhaps the most striking evidence, though, is that there are extant tribes in the Amazon basin, such as the Piraha, a hunter-gatherer tribe in Brazil, whose language is effectively a kind of song. 
possessing such a complex array of tones, stresses, and syllable lengths that its speakers can dispense with their vowels and consonants altogether and sing, hum, or whistle conversations. And if I recall correctly, I, I might be wrong, but I, I think that this culture, the Paraha, I also don't know how to pronounce things, is one that I think the reason, I've read that the reason their language is as it is, is because it's uh, it's used to communicate across really long distances uh, over which a lot of the like detail of enunciation in our normal language would be lost in, you know, in other kinds of languages would be lost. And so it has this like uh, coarser pronunciation or enunciation, but this, you know, this more musical quality, which is so beautiful. Um, but yeah, I think that this claim that music must have preceded language must be true. And, and this claim that it, it not only like phylogenetically must precede language, but that we must have done a whole lot of like really elaborate communication with it, um, or, or something much like music, uh, that, that must be true, not only for the reasons, you know, the ontogenetic reasons that he just described and the, and the fact that it's just kind of a more fundamental form of communication, but like we, we just also have to like look at the evidence of our common and, you know, of like our close relatives and therefore, uh, by inference, our common ancestor with those close relatives, like, Chimps and bonobos spend a lot of time doing, you know, like communicating through vocalization and body language, right? That has a, that's totally non-syntactical. Um, and, and so like our, our common ancestor with those species must have done that also. And so, you know, so that's interesting to think about how like, the evolutionary precursors of language must have been something that we don't really have any counterpart for in the human experience anymore outside of like weirdo performance art, I guess, is really like the only, you know, like, like just like some combination of gesture and intonation that is like, supposed to be a mo you know like that's like that's how performance art goes is like people have these elaborate concepts of what they're conveying and they might do like a a better or worse job because they're not using language or any other explicit symbolism whatsoever <laughs> you know um but but yeah i mean there must have been a very avant-garde phase of our evolution where like a debate about whether to go to the coastline to forage for shellfish or go up on the ridge to forage for berries mu must have involved like some kind of weird you know like dance plus some like stylized grunting of some kind or, or whatever right um but but those those capacities in any whatever form they take, whether it is literally weirdo performance art or music or uh, rioting or somebody describing their willingness to fight for the forest or whatever, 
and you being able to actually see them and kind of like imagine what it feels like to be them. All of these various modes of embodied empathic communication have this profound communicative potential that language and abstraction don't always have, especially in this context. Like it seems like we've especially entered a context in which those tools are really particularly weak, right? You know, or like if you've been on the internet, you know that, you know, like these reasoning processes, like, like everybody's beliefs are predicated on, you know, claims of scientific perfection. Like, let's be real about that. The, the people, you know, the, the people who are arguing for certain kinds of decentralized distribution in our future stateless society and the people who are like taking, you know, anti-parasitical drugs to deal with COVID or whatever, like they're all claiming rigorous processes of reasoning led them to these conclusions. Like no matter where you are, it's all very scientific. And, you know, so like, it's just empirically true. I'm a giant fan of science and analysis, as probably I've made abundantly clear at this point. But but one cannot avoid the empirical truth that these processes take people all kinds of places. Right. Um, so, you know, embodied empathic communication is arguably also a way back towards comprehension of anything that is ultimately like commonly and universally true to humanity and so interestingly if we're you know if we're talking about that as you know those modes of communication and experience as a way of catalyzing social transformation um and you know but also this this fundamental like tension that uh, there's a lot of these kind of tensions, right? You know, where it's like egalitarian modes involve less coercion, but then like coercion is actually valuable for establishing power in societies or like embodied empathic communication, um, you know, tends to unite us in these fundamental truths. Uh, but it also doesn't really tend to coherence. Um, you know, so like looking at the tension, one place where I think it can be argued that at least historically that that mode of communication and social contagion has been employed in the service of something that's more like strategically oriented uh, would be, I hate to say it because I often feel like, you know, because I spent my life doing it and it often feels like it was sort of a waste and like <laughs> we should look for other ways, but like you know, that whole realm of like direct action, like nonviolent direct action, even though I, I tend not to toss the nonviolent uh, terminology around too much because I think nonviolence dogma is like, you know, profoundly destructive. And I think uh, social confrontations of this variety are essentially like aggressive displays. And you're always signaling a willingness to escalate, but you're also giving your an op your opponent a, a chance to not take it there, right? Um, you know, and, and this is like, this is a reality that 
uh, is in common with the aggressive displays of lots and lots of species. There's, you know, like, like a lot of species don't just go for the maximum brutality, right? Like the, the most escalated form of conflict they can imagine right away. They like exchange signals that build up to that because it's mutually advantageous because it's, it's because both parties really do have a lot to lose by just taking it to the most brutal place imaginable. But that's also why, uh, Okay, this is another digression, but you know, but anyway, that's also why uh, protest movements and whatnot that start out as like just sort of like blockades and occupations and things like that do in fact sometimes progress into outright, you know, conflicts of force. Um, because you, even though even though nobody plans it, even though it's not really any like you know, there's no strategy or whatever. It's a, it's a pretty endogenous, a pretty like organic process of evolution because that's just like how our, like how we're built behaviorally. We're built to engage in aggressive displays and then at a certain point to engage in aggression. So I never throw the nonviolence label around, but you know, I, I mean, like, I did, in fact, spend a significant part of my adult life organizing confrontations of of unarmed uh, of unarmed people against armed opponents, and you know, like, what is that? Like, on its face, it looks pretty ridiculous. It looks like a pretty meaninglessly self-destructive way to behave. But what I would say, I, I do feel like this meaning has like largely gotten lost. Like, I don't feel like it's the reality that's clearly present uh, when you're looking at somebody like lock themselves to the door of some office or, you know, or to a bulldozer or whatever. Um, there has been, in fact, like a calculus that is kind of the opposite of the old historic animating ethic of direct action has really crept in, which is like, well, we should do nonviolent direct action because the barrier to participation is low, right? And, you know, like this whole, this whole like Chenoweth and Stefan liberal social change paradigm that literally the only thing that matters is how many people are on your side, right? As if a lot of people thinking something changes how societies are like that, that complete ignorance of, of the realities of power. Um, you know, but there's, there's that whole idea that you're just trying to generate numbers. And so whatever you can do, that's like the least scary, uh, is, is best, but you know, historically a lot of the meanings of nonviolent direct action were kind of the opposite where it like it wasn't a less intense you know risky experientially demanding approach to conflict than armed conflict it, it was like a more demanding one right where you know it was like the it required like the ultimate courage to to confront to confront an armed opponent unarmed was like not you know it wasn't supposed to be trivial it was supposed to be exactly as insanely brave as that is and there was this sense in which you were 
the, the point, I guess, I think, was to show people a version of themselves that was not afraid. And the idea that that could catalyze a widespread transformation is based on, I think, the very accurate assumption that our social order and, you know, and everything we really don't like about it is ultimately the product of fear. That, that, that really is the axiomatic, singular, monolithic like characterization that we can make about everything that is going horribly wrong in the human experience is that it's a surrender to fear ultimately um and you know so you could look at that in a number of ways like in terms of your opponents you're showing them a version of themselves that doesn't have to do what they're doing which is you know like brutalize you and drag you off to jail or whatever because you're showing them what it would be like to not be afraid and again mirror neurons and all that you're showing them a version of themselves and that you know i mean certainly this is true in like the broader population in general and so that would account for how those movements gained momentum and, and garnered participation um, that process of transcending fear in a collective context is something that people desperately need and want that this society not only doesn't give them opportunities for but but militates against because that would be threatening to the society and a, a reflection of that a a thing that i think would be easy not to like quite grasp about social movements of the past and like nonviolent direct action scenes of the past and just like how they did look at the world and what they were doing as like, you know, not as like risk aversion, but as like carrying truth into battle and, and, and really believing that that was going to be more potent than the application of force um, is that there were all these weird I think mostly bullshit stories that would circulate in direct action scenes back in the day that were about like the one guy who supposedly knew how to relax his body in the one way where it took like 12 cops an hour to pick him up and put him in a van or whatever, you know, where it was like, but you know, but and as much as I think, I think most of those stories were nonsense, but it's like, it, the the fact that they existed illustrates like a an underlying a basic psychological reality you know which is like people were not engaging these confrontations from this perspective of saying like well whatever you know whatever gets me home to watch like nine hours of streaming content tonight and back to work in the morning is what i want to do but people were like trying to truly transcend the the actual underlying psychological motivations that produced the actual behaviors that constituted the systemic reality of injustice and destruction that they were fighting and i do think as much as i have no idea what would possibly compel me at this point to try to like convince people to go get their skulls cracked in by the police. Uh, I do think that, you know, on some level, 
that is sacred and beautiful and, and shouldn't be forgotten, shouldn't be forgotten as we assess the future. We're from the Crayfish School. Let me try your snake fist then. So I suppose that brings us to, you know, a broader discussion of the role of fear in the social and political uh, realities that we inhabit and the prospects for overcoming that fear and talking about this in terms of left-right brain hemisphere processing style differences. Um, I was really, really struck by the extent to which so much of the language that McGilchrist used to characterize these differences is language that is all like just identical to that which is involved in discussing the integration of trauma and like in trauma theory, which I guess I have never actually consumed like vast troves of, but you know, certainly have engaged with some. And the on the podcast, I would say a great introduction is the three interviews I did with my friend Joshua Silve. Um, but like in terms of, I think that there's a, it's very interesting to me that there isn't more universally applicable, more like uh, solidly codified terminology for a lot of this stuff. I think that indicates a real lack. Um, it's, it's like really is a problem that we don't have better terms to, to characterize some of these general realities. Like what trauma kind of is, is, you know, over, like if, if people have an experience that reverberates for a long time afterwards in a way that really diminishes their, their well-being, their ability to engage life on its own terms, you know, things like that, um, is like, it's an experience of some, some reality that's so overwhelming that we go into a state of kind of like denial about it, right? That we don't, we specifically just don't experience the full extent of it. In the words of one trauma theorist that I have read, we refuse to flow with the symptoms. And that's what integration of traumatic experience, that's, that's what it is when it loses its power, is that first it's a process of experiencing it in a kind of absolute, unmitigated form for the first time, of experiencing the full scope of whatever terrifying, painful experience we had without any of the mental mechanisms that we invoke, which in McGilchrist's characterization seem very characteristic of the left hemisphere, um, to kind of like just deny the potency of the experience, which um, again, the, these, these themes of, of subdivision and stasis, of, of fracture and freeze, right? The, those very terms, fracture and freeze, should possess like a fair amount of salience to, uh, you know, if not all heavily traumatized people, a, a significant, a significant number of them. 
where you know it's so common um, in intense cases of PTSD for people to have the physical sensations of their body being broken apart into different pieces. And, you know, and I, I think that this, this reflects this reality that you can see that's a cross species reality. You can totally see it in other animals. Like when an animal is subject to predation, it seems like there's three basic responses that happen. One where it just keeps fighting to the very fucking end. One where it experiences all that pain and terror to the very end. You know, sometimes, sometimes that goes on for a while. Um, and that's just like one of the truths of this world. And then sometimes you can just see an animal like go away. Like at a certain point when the fight is lost, you can see in their eyes and whatnot that they are just somewhere else and they stop struggling and vocalizing and they just go somewhere else. Right. And, and we do that too. And we, we do it on so many levels. We do it to different degrees, right? The, the landscape of denial of any experience we don't like is, is always diverse and it's always like degrees and varieties of denial. Um, but you know, at the level of experience, I think that this comes about, I'm, I'm just going to say this and Probably people have been in, you know, probably people have been exposed to some stimulus or other in their life that they they weren't really willing to grapple with in its entirety at the time. And, you know, so hopefully this seems intuitively comprehensible. But I think that at the level of experience, a lot of what we do is, first of all, an attempt to kind of arrest experience to literally just stop it's like progression um, and you know so obviously like that's that theme of, of stasis of, of freeze and then we literally draw lines like according to the left hemisphere's prevailing tendency to just want to draw a bunch of lines everywhere and subdivide things like we literally draw lines uh, between it, it like through our experience designating what we're willing to acknowledge is happening and what we're just not. And I think that maps roughly to that feeling that people have in their bodies of being like a broken up assemblage of parts of a fractured being. Um, and yeah, so we strangely don't have like, I, I think that the reality that one must uh, come to terms with whatever one fears most about a situation in order to functionally engage it at all, right? That paradoxically, like according to, you know, the, the code of the samurai that one must meditate on the image of one's corpse before going into battle and totally internalize the emotional consequences and conclude that one is already dead before one raises their sword above their head or you know like the the uh reality that in so many traditional cultures there's some process or another like an initiatory process or a warrior ethic or whatever that tells us some version of that same thing that 
in order to affect outcomes, we must accept the outcome that we fear the most as fundamentally, irrevocably true. We must go through that emotional process to uh, mobilize our capacities to do anything about a situation we're in. I think that is one of the most pertinent aspects of the socio-political realities that we inhabit at every level like so much of what i've talked about on this podcast is stuff that i think should be like broadly understood among a diversity of political actors but is mostly just totally ignored because people are afraid that biology implies you know, a story about humanity trapped in some cycle of brutality or another that they wish to transcend, right? It's just, you know, not coming to terms with what something means because of fear about what it means. And then you just never get to explore the incredibly rich, interesting, paradox-wrought, multifarious landscape of what biology actually means about human behavior and politics or certainly an unwillingness to come to terms with the reality that we have vastly exceeded the biophysical limits of the planet that we inhabit, or even the the much less terrifying and tragic reality that we just can't do what we're doing forever, that all, you know, that all of these uh, materials and processes that comprise industrial civilization or whatever just aren't viable like anywhere you fucking look or or <laughs> the the inner group fear and hostility the fear of the other that has been the defining feature of politics it's been like the psychological reality that you know constrains politics along these inane childishly stupid courses over and over again wherever you look you know there's this basic reality that everything that's wrong with our societies and their politics um, really does reflect this you know this particular this particular mode in which fear operates which is um not allowing us to just come to terms with the emotional and psychological implications of different things that we can see perfectly well are true and just coming up with other stories about them or refusing or just refusing to engage with them at all. These are really the fundamental characteristics of the society we live in. And so, you know, it's like really, really, really worth asking um, what, if anything, can be done or could be different or what the escape looks like. And so, yeah, broadly speaking, I really do think a key point to to understand about the situations that we're in is that a, a process of social transformation away from this this trajectory would very much resemble, it would be a collective version of the process of traumatic integration at the scale of the individual, right? In that sense, that it would be a confrontation with truths that are difficult and scary 
and a coming to terms with their potentially terrible implications, and then a transcendence of that fear. Um, and I just think it's so crazy that there's not already like some really precise terminology I can use to make that statement in my in the past in my casual way like in my own in internal deliberations i've often called this the acceptance paradox um i asked around on twitter if there was like more codified terminology that anybody knew of and um it's not necessarily the case that it's more codified but i just think it's cooler I've started referring to the acceptance paradox um, as Ye Tang Che, which is, you know, come, comes out of Buddhism. And the quote that goes with it to describe it in this book review, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from in a minute is only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in us. Word. And uh, so that's that's from this book review of a, a book called When Things Fall Apart by a Buddhist monk and quoting from it, fear is a universal experience. Even the smallest insect feels it. We wade in the tidal pools and put our finger near the soft, open bodies of sea anemones and they close up. Everything spontaneously does that. It's not a terrible thing that we feel fear when faced with the unknown. It's a part of being alive, something we all share. We react against the possibility of loneliness, of death, of not having anything to hold on to. Fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. If we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, then our experience becomes very vivid. Things become very clear when there is nowhere to escape. Okay, and so, you know, again, the obvious question is like, well, if that, if what we're saying is that the acceptance paradox or ye tang che or whatever um, is kind of like the characteristic transformation at the collective level that would have to happen for a less suicidal form of society to emerge, uh, you know, again, like, what are we talking about? And if it involved some em embodied empathic communication, some collective process, still, what are we talking about? And, and you know, I, I mean, I think about this a lot, right? Like, I've given this non-trivial thought, and I've been willing to, to, really, to really engage in political strategy you, it's not just that you have to be clever, it's that you have to be willing to be absurd. You have to like, you have to be willing to do the hard emotional work of positing some very specific thing that could happen against that risk of being like, God, you know, or like that thing really might not happen if we try to make it happen. And if it does, it really might not mean what we think it will. But I, you know, but that's like, that's why I just, I think that we could do politics a lot more scientifically, like, like in that sense, like we, we could treat strategies as falsifiable hypotheses and then you're never, you're never wrong. I mean, I know there is like, there's a mindset that's easy to get into. I guess I say this somewhat at a distance, but I'm almost sure it's true in scientific research 
where it's like one set of results will feel really thrilling because they'll like validate some hypothesis. But then, you know, if you get results, you still did science. Even if your hypothesis wasn't validated, that's actually a really interesting, useful result that other people could you know, potentially integrate into their understanding of the world. Uh, so uh, blah, blah, blah. But I, I have, you know, like really tried to like do that, like that potentially that very self-conscious, ridiculous work of being like, what could actually happen? And, and like trying to look at it in concrete terms. And, and it's so hard. But one thing that I would say is that this yet again returns us to this question of whether the existing political frames and terminologies are really at all adequate or useful in any way to our purposes. And this would be one realm in which this, where we are right now, like what we've just touched on, the emotional and psychological needs that I'm characterizing and the sense in which traditional societies of a wide range, right? Like in, with a wide range of like political, you know, social structures um, had some mechanism for sort of like catalyzing the full resilience of the human psyche and that if you know if you listen to the the Joshua Silva interviews he talks about this cross species reality of like responding to trauma by surrendering to it completely and you being able to see animals who say have like escaped a predation attempt or whatever go into like a total like shaking just like freak out like just losing their mind uh and how we have trouble we have trouble like going all the way into that, like the full extent of that experience and thus allowing it to no longer to like move through us and no longer have power over us and how traditional societies had ways of catalyzing that strength, that resilience and strength that we possess. I would say that this is one way in which the kind of like confused and multiple meanings of leftism as they have come to exist in the contemporary context feels really at odds with my politics. Like this is one sense in which I really do not identify as a leftist is that somehow I know obviously there are many people who ardently identify as left who aren't like participating in this particular like elaboration or development of what it of what leftism means but i'm going to say there there are also a lot of people who are where it's this thing that at some point the psychology of like harm avoidance and empathy in this particular you know in the hyper technological milieu that we occupy that promotes like maximum epistemic differentiation kind of for its own sake. Um, somehow or another, the right wing has developed this mon like seeming monopoly on like toughness and strength and like getting, 
getting like real with yourself and, you know, and, and all this stuff that I, I actually think is like, if your ethical motivations are to diminish people's suffering, you know, this is a paradox of, of existence, but the, the way to do that is not to try to like shield them from every hardship, but for them to, to help them develop the capacities to confront unbearable truths, right? And that this is a, this is like a central motivation for me of, of any process of sociopolitical engagement is, is like getting people to be strong enough to, uh, to confront what they don't want to and to, you know, therefore gain the capacity to affect outcomes um but but even i mean just to like i think to illustrate how much like these meanings have become weirdly correlated with left-right politics like even the fact that i invoke the idea of strength codes as like if not exactly right wing like definitely like not left you know and again, I am not saying that everybody on the left is participating in this. And, and I'm well aware, I'm well aware of the like hyper like the hyper aesthetic versions of leftism that are like sort of just about being like the muscle bound dude who works in a factory from a propaganda poster or whatever, you know, like. But th but this is a sense like uh, this gets into this broader discussion about like whether these frames and labels are actually useful. I, I I don't really think they are. And there's this whole like you can say that you are a leftist and that you mean that in some axiomatic sense of like what true leftism is. And you might even have a really convincing argument, but then there's just the empirical reality of everything that people have managed to associate with leftism, like, you know, who are often like right-wing messaging strategists, or, or let's be real, that, you know, people associate with leftism because significant numbers of people said this is leftism. And the, the two realities like that, that, that really stand out to me that I think very significantly complicate, um, any, any project of being like, well, this is the true good leftism and let's advance it as a political agenda. Um, are the, you know, associations with totalitarian regimes, which again, like, one could make the argument that there's no such thing as like a left authoritarian regime because left means opposition to hierarchy or whatever. But empirically, like those regimes said that they were leftist. And, and you know, I'm doing an episode on left wing authoritarianism, I think next or pretty soon. Like, and let's be real, like there, there's a significant, there, there's a type of person out there who finds that particular mythology really compelling, you know, there, but then the other associate, the other negative association that would be really difficult to transcend is, is that is like this genius thing that right wing framers did of somehow making a system 
in which of, of somehow like exploiting the psychology, the very relevant, valid human psychology of like being, you know, being invincible of saying like, oh, whatever, whatever terrible adversity I face, like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna face it. And if I can transcend it, I will. Um, which, you know, like that psychology for, for any of us who've ever had to figure out how to survive in this society, um, that psychology can get invoked in these really absurd contexts, like your job or like finding a job or whatever. And, you know, but, but the right's ability to exploit that psychology such that people feel like they're proudly defending it when they're defending a fucking system where like seven really lazy ass billionaires uh, control everything and the rest of us just like work for them. You know, I mean, it's that it's insane, but, but they've done it and, and they've done it with the help again of a, of a lot of people who really are out there who are kind of constantly, whether, whether they explicitly, say like this is our ideology or not in practice what they're doing is sort of constantly opposing any explanation that involves any kind of like personal resilience or strength or agency of any kind in favor of you know like structural explanations and arguments about like harm avoidance and all that and so this this is a real sense in which I, I would kind of argue that reframing politics, like as I've said along the lines of like wholeness versus division, or really maybe it's more salient to say that, you know, that politics could maybe be reframed along new lines all the time, that there's something, I mean, while retaining your consistent meanings, but just literally like, what you're actually presenting as the salient variable, like what you're talking about. Um, there's a huge argument for shifting the terrain all the time, that that should be like actually a key, like a kind of axiomatic strategic understanding that you approach any situation with is that at a certain point, uh, you're going to need to vary your tactics and vary your frames and that the more that you can constantly make your opponent adapt to the new like terrain that you've established the more likely you are to win anyway all of that is to say that i really actually think the left right framing is pretty deeply problematic and just has it just has too much a uh, legacy association with it like it just really does and but it also like that very terminology to me like in a very obvious way seems to reflect a psychology of fracture like a psychology of only employing certain reasoning processes and certain modes of experience and I totally see that in the right-left divide uh, in ways that I don't think are healthy. And it's not the same thing as saying, I, like, I do think that we should experience the totality of our experience, you know, our, like our psychological potentials or whatever, which isn't the same thing as saying that we should seek balance. The, the, the pretty, like, crude misinterpretation of what I'm saying 
is that that should somehow that the engagement with all of our the totality of our psychological potential should somehow map to uh, like a balance of political perspective you know be, between the perspectives that emerge from like these really fragmented versions of ourselves that's not what i'm saying uh but but i do think that there's I think that it would just be better to get away from anything that, you know, like literally refers to one half of ourselves. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence. Whatever, whatever its particular meanings are, I think it means something. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I don't think it's good. And the last like type of fear that I wanted to mention that I think we're trying to get people to integrate. And then maybe I'm just going to say this is an episode. This, this one, I, the next few episodes I think are masterpieces of like coherent structure with lots of quotes. And, you know, I, I feel like I just, I just did a good job of like clearly doing some homework. You know, the sense that I have in this podcast is like, I really only want to ask people to listen to me if I like really obviously like did some work that is translated into what what I'm presenting. And this one feels a little bit like it's it's mostly just like an assessment of stuff that I've already read and to some extent described. But Hopefully it still feels at least somewhat interesting. Um, anyway, the, the last form of fear that I wanted to mention that I think we're trying to get people to have their Ye Tang Che moment about is the, the fear that is present in the psychology of the abused. Um, and at the individual scale, we all kind of know about how this works and probably many of us have had some experience of trying to help somebody get out of an abusive relationship and realizing that the big barrier is not logistics or anything else, but the, the senses in which the abused has internalized, you know, has learned how to survive that process by identifying with their abuser because it works better to appease a monster if you genuinely, like to, by genuinely feeling affinity, right? And um, that something just precisely, precisely homologous with this is happening at the collective scale in our societies and in the need so many people feel to justify and identify with the systems of power that are destroying them and destroying the world that they live in. And that, you know, this, this gets into that reality that so often when people are doing something out of fear, they literally don't even know that they're afraid. They do not even have access to the part of themselves that knows that this is a fear response. Um, and you can see, like, I read some really interesting commentary by somebody who had spent a lot of time in North Korea, who was like expressing skepticism about various like ostensible political solutions being advanced by, you know, people in the West or whatever, 
where she was just saying like you really don't understand how like how different these people are from the process of living in this totalitarian society which north korea really has like a very cult-like nature from from my from my perspective but um you know like how much they don't even know that they live in a totalitarian society that doesn't allow them a range of perceptions or experiences right that they're too afraid to comprehend what we from the outside can see but i think that process of like fearful incomprehension of the nature of the society you live in is very much a continuum that we are also on you know here in america where they lock more people up than anywhere else it would be a real surprise if we were just totally unfamiliar with this reality and you know so like that that reality is ultimately the biggest barrier to the the biggest like functional impediment to most of the strategies that i've witnessed or tried is you know like ultimately it just does come up at some point that most people aren't really on your side you know and <laughs> and uh i i i think that that's why to a big extent i mean i think that there's there's psychological variation that places some people in a real position of actual identification with the monsters even if they're not particularly benefiting from the world the monsters have created but there's i think that there's a much larger proportion of the population that is accepting of and defensive of the social order to some large degree because they're afraid and they are so afraid that they just don't even know that they're afraid so that's the work i don't know how to do the work um if i did i would just do it you know but it seems like that's a a very significant dimension of anything that we're talking about is that where however far along the trajectory of collapse we're on it will always be true that we could make better and worse worlds at least right then and there you know at least for a little while um and, and that doing so would involve some massive reckoning at the collective level with fear and that that massive reckoning would involve not arguments based on language and abstraction but would involve some kind of collective process that was catalyzed by our capacities for embodied empathic communication dancing epidemics riots direct action I feel like we have a very limited number of case studies to apply um and that none of them really get us even in the door really of thinking about what to do next that it involves a lot of you know very creative conceptualization of like legitimate novelty but that they do tell us that those behavioral potentials for as 
far along a feedback loop between technology and biology as we've entered for as much as we seem to have just completely lost the versions of ourselves that were characteristic of human cultures pretty much everywhere really not that long ago. There is some sense in which it's true that those potentials are right there and that waking them up is something that may seem impossible but is always going to be on the verge of happening, at least on the verge of happening, if not, friends, actually fucking happening. That's the thesis. Like I said, got lots more material completely outlined. I entered some weird phase where I just did a bunch of outlines but didn't record anything. So now I've got a glut. I've got a glut of material. So we'll do an episode on left authoritarianism soon. I'm doing an interview this Saturday with Daniel of what is politics. Finally, like literally a year after the interview that I did in a horrible state of deprivation and misery and therefore uh, botched on a technical level and couldn't release. And I have an episode that I'm very excited about sort of, I would say, like consummating the promise of the Scientific Militant series. Um, So we'll go into some more psychographic segmentation of like not the public that the scientific community is trying to communicate with, but the scientists themselves and a consequent reconceptualization of what science even is. And then we will hammer out some actual strategic theses uh, which I don't, you know, I don't always get to, but that's always, it's always a hope. I think it's super worthwhile and interesting to just say, like, to like point out characteristics of the situation and say, well, I think this is how things are. You know, the, the understanding is useful, but it's lovely to be able to get to a point where every once in a while I can say, here's like a thing we could do, you know, so... That's all coming up very soon, and I thank you so much for listening, and we will talk again soon.